The scripture today is from John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. There's a diagnosis in the medical world that's given to primarily infants and toddlers. It's called FTT. And it stands for Failure to Thrive. And what's interesting is this is not a, it's not a disease in itself, it's not a disorder, but it's a sign that is placed upon an infant or a toddler that's, that's literally failing to grow or, or failing to gain weight. And as you talk to people in the medical world and you read about it, it's, it's somewhat of a mystery because the signs are evident. The child's just not growing, not gaining weight, but the reasons behind it are a, really a complete mystery. As John starts his gospel, the first 18 verses, which are really an introduction and a summary of the entire gospel, he describes a a world that is suffering from FTT, failure to thrive, so to speak. A world that, as he describes it, there's darkness. A world where there's a rejection of him a world of unbelief. It's a world that's failing to thrive. And and the reason he, he starts here is because he, unlike the other gospel writers, begins all the way back in creation to start with the gospel. In the beginning is how he starts his gospel, hearkening back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, when God created the world, 
And, and God created this world in Genesis 1 that was beautiful and perfect and, and teeming with life. And he put two people in it, Adam and Eve, and they were enjoying God. And verse 4 says, in him, which is speaking of Jesus Christ, we'll get to that, but in him was life. I mean, this world was thriving. But John also introduces the theme of light and darkness as he opens his gospel. And he says, the light shines in the darkness. And there's really two references there. One is, is all the way back to the very beginning in creation, in Genesis 1, when we read the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep, that there was this, this world that was dark and, and formless and the spirit of God hovered over it and, and brought light into it. And what we learn here as John starts his gospel is that now Jesus Christ is coming back into his world to bring light into his broken world that's dark. You're gonna see as we look, as we work through this gospel, these, this recreation theme is, is just over and over through the gospel of John, that Jesus Christ is literally remaking this world. And there are seven signs in the gospel of John that will be drawn out. Those seven signs are mirroring the seven days of creation that God is, is recreating his world. In John 10, you'll hear Jesus say, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I've come that, that people would thrive and move from functional death into life. And so as John starts his gospel, which is an introduction and a summary of the whole thing in 18 verses, He's answering the question, how does God bring life to a dying and dark world that is failing to thrive? How does he do this? And we're gonna see it's through Jesus Christ, it's through rebirth, and it's through grace. Now let's start with Jesus Christ. In verses one and two, we're introduced to the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in, he was in the beginning with God. There's this emphasis on the word. Now, what is it? How are we to understand it? Well, it brings us back again to creation. In the beginning, Genesis 1, when God's powerful word made the world. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God's word was powerful, brought life into the world. And then we, we see, even as you work from creation into uh, uh, Mount Sinai, when God's people are rescued from Egypt and they're at Mount Sinai and God descends onto the mountain with Moses to what? Reveal himself with words, who he is. It's the same way. What we see here is that God's powerful words are his words of self-expression. He's expressing himself to his people, just like you express yourself through words to other people. You do that because you're made in the image of God. God expresses himself. Here's who I am through his word. Now, what's interesting about the first two verses is we learn that the word is actually a person. It's a person that was with God and that is God. And verse 14 makes it very clear who this person is. The word is Jesus Christ. And what we learn in verse three is even more astounding. It tells us that when God spoke the world into existence, Jesus Christ was the agent through which he did that. And the New Testament is full of descriptions of Jesus Christ as creator of the world. Colossians 1.16, for by Jesus, all things were created. And so what we have here is, in the beginning, when the world was created, it was Jesus Christ who was creating. And now John says, now Jesus Christ is coming into the world he created to remake it because it's been darkened by sin 
and has fallen upon death and not the way it's supposed to be. I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible captures this about Jesus Christ, that he's the creator in the very beginning and he's the recreator now. Uh, when it tells the story about Jesus uh, in the storm, calming the storm, remember the story, the disciples are on the boat, big storm kicks up, they're flipping out, Jesus is asleep under the, you know, underneath, he finally wakes up, right? Listen to how the Jesus Storybook Bible describes it. Jesus stood up and spoke to the storm. Hush, he said. That's all. And the strangest thing happened. The wind and the waves recognized Jesus' voice. They had heard it before, of course. It was the same voice that made them in the very beginning. They listened to Jesus and they did what he said. Beautiful picture of Jesus coming into his world and speaking. It's the same voice. They recognized his voice. Mark chapter four in describing that says that Jesus actually rebuked the wind and the waves. In other words, he told them to stand down. Why? Hurricanes, tornadoes, storms, that's a product of Genesis 3. That's a sign and evidence of the brokenness of our world, the wind and the waves out of control. And Jesus comes on the scene as the remaker of his world and says, hush, I didn't create you for this. Disorder, this darkness and this storm and the fear it produces, so quiet down. And so you have Jesus Christ coming into his world and remaking it and recreating it, calling the wind and the waves to do what they're intended to do. Before Genesis 3, when chaos struck. You know, in our current home, uh, several years after we moved in, we had a paver patio installed in the back. And uh, before this paver patio got installed, I decided to rework the irrigation system because there were sprinkler heads in the grass where pavers were gonna be. And I decided to do it because in our previous home, I had installed an irrigation system from start to finish, the whole enchilada, everything. So I know how these things work. The problem is what I realized in our current home is that I didn't design and install the irrigation system in our current home, which meant I didn't know where the pipes were under the ground. I saw sprinkler heads, but I didn't know what was below. And so it was incredibly difficult to figure out how am I going to move this sprinkler head and tie it in over here. In my previous home, it would have been a no-brainer because I designed it. I installed it. I would have known exactly where to go, exactly where to move that sprinkler head. The point is this. Jesus made this world, and therefore he knows how to fix it. And Jesus made you. He designed you. And therefore, he knows how to, to fix you and bring thriving to your life. He's the creator and he's the recreator. But as we see, and as we'll see here, we seek all kinds of ways to fix our world and fix ourselves apart from Jesus. And John brings this out with the, the word, which in the Greek is Logos. And he uses a word here that the two dominant groups of the day used. You had the Jews and the Greeks. Those were the predominant peoples of the day. And both of those people groups had a concept of the word and how it was a solution to the world's problems. So for the Greeks, their word logos, the word, they understood it to be 
uh, some impersonal force that guides the universe. Think of uh, Star Wars, right? May the force be with you, okay? Some force, some impersonal force, and they believed that was the solution to the world's problem. Now, today, we, some people would say that that's, the, that's fate. Uh, probably more so today, what you'll hear is people saying there's a reason behind everything. Everything happens for a reason. You know what's interesting about that phrase? Super religious people use it and super unreligious people or irreligious people use it. It's just a common phrase. Everything happens for a reason. What that's getting at is there's something greater than us. I don't know what it is. It's impersonal. It's some force, but it somehow has this world clicking along. It's where horoscopes come from. It's where palm reading comes from right, which is an attempt to tap into this mysterious unknown force and see what my future is going to be and make sure it's okay, right? That was the Greek understanding of the word. And so John, Jesus comes on the scene and John in his gospel here comes on the scene and says, let me tell you what this word is. It's not an impersonal force. It's a person, Jesus Christ, now, the other dominant people group of the day, the Jews, they had a concept of the word and it was tied to the Old Testament. It was tied to God in the very beginning who spoke the world into existence, right, with his word. It was tied to their understanding of Mount Sinai when they received the law, the words of God on how they were supposed to live. But as we see and progress throughout the Old Testament is that, is that it's very easy for the law or the words of God represented in the law to become in and of itself, the means to change. Listen, the law tells us what we should do and how the world's designed, but it doesn't empower us to actually do it. And so you can turn, right? And that happened times. You can turn the word of God that the Jews had, very religious view, like these are the words of God. You can turn this into a glorious self-help book, right? A book of rules. Just, just pattern your life after this and you'll be fine. And John comes on the scene and says, let me tell you, Jews, let me tell you about the word. It's not just a collection of commands and rules and principles. No, it's a person. His name's Jesus Christ. And so what we learn in these first few verses is that God is not remaking his world through some irrational mysticism or generic spirituality, which is all over our world today. Nor is God remaking his world, world through a collection of principles or commands or treating this like a self-help book. No, God is remaking his world through the light, Jesus Christ. Darkness can't drive out darkness. Hate can't drive out hate. Only light can drive out darkness. And John's saying Jesus Christ, a person, not somebody impersonal, a person is remaking this world and he's fully God, and he's fully man. How is God remaking his world? First, through Jesus Christ. Second, through rebirth. Now, you would think that if the true light of the world, Jesus Christ, were coming into the world, that everybody would respond by bowing the knee, right? And worshiping him, and receiving him, and believing in him. He's the true light of the world. What we see here is just the opposite. Right? Look at verses 10 and 11. It says the world was made through him. The designer, the creator of the world comes on the scene. It's his world. What happens? Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own 
and his own people did not receive him. So the Jewish people who had all the promises from the Old Testament of a Messiah to come, they rejected him and the broader world rejected him when he came on the scene. And so what we learn here and what you'll see as we work through the gospel of John is you're gonna see this rebellion of the human heart. That there is in each of us a deep desire to be autonomous, which means that we have a deep desire to be independent of, of God, to do our own thing, to call the shots, to run our own agenda, to be independent of God, that that is the deep inclination of our heart. And you see this throughout the story of the scriptures, right? The first, the first sin committed was that, Adam and Eve, right? desiring to be independent of God. They thought we will pursue happiness apart from God. We don't need God. That was the first sin and we, we inherited it. But then you move on uh, to from the Garden of Eden to the Tower of Babel in Genesis. What was that? All of the people getting together to build a city to be independent of God. And then you move from that to Israel in the desert between rescue from Egypt and the promised land. What'd they do the whole time? They grumbled. They complained over and over, right? And they even said, we want to go back to Egypt. God, we, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, you're leading us, guiding us. No, thanks. We want to go back to Egypt, right? Independence. You just see it coming out of the human heart. And then by the time we get to the prophets in the Old Testament, God sends his prophets to try to rescue his people. What do they do? They kill them. No thanks. We want to be independent. And so what's the, what's the solution to a world full of people who are committed to independence from God? What's the solution? Well, look at verse 13. After verse 12, those who received him, believed in him, verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, I want you to see the emphasis here. You can't fix yourself, right? This is not, this can't happen by the will of the flesh, by the will of man. You can't rebirth yourself. What, what John is saying here is for you to be remade as a person and therefore for the world to be remade, this does not happen through a human project. This happens from God and it's called rebirth. Right? There's, there's not enough self-help books or uh, there's not enough classes on anti-independence or enough classes on how you love people to change you. Right? Because that's all will of the man. That's trying to exert, uh, beat on your will to change you. It won't work. It takes rebirth. It takes being born of God. Rebirth as a new person. You know, I was reading an article this past week uh, about the the violence that happened in Charlottesville, Virginia last week. And there was an article that quoted uh, LeBron James about his, his comments about what happened. And his message was that we need to love one another and stop hating one another. And his message was, don't rely on the government. Don't rely on anybody else. You just need to love people and, and not hate one another. Now, I appreciate that message, and it is true. It's the right message. The problem is man can't accomplish it independent of God. 
You can't just, I mean, that's the message that has been preached after every act of racial violence, and it's the right message. But mankind can't get there independent of God, which is the problem with the human heart. It takes rebirth. It takes being born again. And, and you realize your rebirth when you bow the knee to Jesus. When you bow the knee to Jesus, you receive him as Lord and Savior. You believe in him. You realize your rebirth, that you're a new person, that you're a new creation, that you're no longer your own Lord and Savior, which is the native sinful inclination of your heart, that you've been rebirthed and you have new desires and the ability now to love and not hate. I want you to imagine if we, if we brought a, a big piano up here on stage. And I want you to imagine that this piano was severely out of tune. And we bring up uh, an eight-year-old girl to give a recital on the piano. And she does a recital. And it sounds awful. So then we bring up a college student at UNF who's on music scholarship for playing the piano. And that college student comes up and plays the piano and she gets done and, and, and you say, wow, it was better than the eight-year-old, but it still wasn't that good. So then we bring up the first chair pianist in the Jacksonville Symphony. And he comes up and he plays a recital on the piano. And it's better than the eight-year-old, it's better than the college student, but it's still not that good. So then you pull out all the stops. We bring Mozart back from the dead we bring him up on stage, we sit him behind this piano and let him play. And it's better than the eight-year-old, it's better than the college student, it's better than the Jacksonville Symphony person, but it still is not very good. Why? Because this piano is out of tune. And the only way to get good music out of it is to lift it up, get inside of it, and retune this thing. What John is saying here is that your heart is out of tune that our hearts cannot play good music because they're tuned to independence from God. That out of the womb, you come into this world with a heart that is tuned to autonomy and independence. And you can't get rid of that. Only God can by rebirthing you. That you would be born again of him. We're gonna get to it again in chapter three with Nicodemus but that you have to be reborn. And that when you bow the knee to Jesus and you receive him as Lord and Savior, that you're not your own Lord and Savior, you realize that rebirth that only God has done and can do, that he retunes your heart. How is God remaking this world? So through Jesus Christ, a person, not some mystical gen generic spirituality, but through a person, a God-man. Second, through rebirth, not trying harder, but being reborn as a new person. And then third, through his grace. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now the word dwelt here in the Greek is the same word that is used in the Old Testament for tabernacle in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so what this really reads is, the word became flesh and tabernacled with us or lived in his tent with us. And what we see here from this 
from, from John talking about seeing God's glory to uh, the law coming through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ, John is pulling us back to Exodus chapter 33 and 34. And in Exodus 33, Moses says to God, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory, God. Reveal yourself to me. Who are you? Express yourself. Tell me who you are. And listen to God's response in Exodus 33, verse 19. He says to Moses, I will make all my goodness or glory pass before you. And I will, will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. God reveals himself to Moses. Moses says, God, show me your glory. And God says, you want to see my glory? You know what you're going to see? Grace and mercy. That's who I am. And what's shocking about this is that God says that to Moses right after the golden calf incident at the base of Mount Sinai, which is where God descends on Mount Sinai to meet Moses and through Moses to, to reveal himself to his people. And the people get impatient at the base of the mountain because Moses doesn't come down quick enough. And what do they do? They build a golden calf to worship to find life, to find thriving independent of God. That's the nature of the human heart. And they do it just like that. So they build a golden calf and then God's immediate response after that is what? Grace and mercy. Now why? Because the picture we have here is of a God that moves towards us. A God that moves towards us. And it's the story from the beginning of the Bible till the end. Think about the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, what do they do? They rebel against God. They, they seek independence from him. We're gonna find happiness apart from you. And how does God respond? He moves towards them and covers their nakedness. And then you pick up right after God delivers his people from Egypt. Three days later, they come across the Red Sea. They're in the desert. They can't find water. They start grumbling and complaining against God. We wanna go back to Egypt. What does God do? He turns this bitter water into sweet water. And one day later, he takes them to an oasis, 12 springs and 70 palm trees. Then you get to the golden calf incident, right? God's coming down to reveal himself graciously to his people. And what do they do? They say, no, we're gonna seek our independence. We're gonna make our own God and worship it. What does God do? He says, well, I'm gonna give you instructions for the tabernacle. Because I want, in this desert, day and night, to pitch my tent with you. I want to be with you. I want to dwell with you. You can run from me. You can seek independence. But I want to dwell with you, and I'm going to move towards you. And you say, why? Why would God do that? Why wouldn't he just hang it up? Say, this is a rebellious people. They don't want me, so let them have it. Why? Why? When we see in verse 14, Verse 14 says he's full of grace and truth. Now, what does that mean? We typically read that and we parse it out. And we say grace and truth, almost like opposites, you know? So we, we, saw, we talk about you have to be gracious to people, but then you, you gotta speak truth too, right? So make sure it's a balance of grace and truth. That's not what this is describing. Remember, this is tied to Exodus 33 and 34. And grace and truth is a, is a couplet that's synonymous with a couplet we see in Exodus 34, Right after God 
uh, shows Moses the backside of his glory. He tucks him in the rock. He shows him the backside of his glory as he passes by. He says to Moses, hey, next day, come back up on top of this mountain because I want to proclaim something to you. And in Exodus 34, 6, 6, he says this to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. That steadfast love and faithfulness, that is the same thing as grace and truth in John chapter one. And what John is saying is that Jesus Christ is fulfilling the covenant that God made with Moses to be steadfast love and faithfulness. And John says, here is Jesus Christ, grace and truth, the fulfillment of this steadfast love and this faithfulness. That he has fulfilled God's law for you, that he has fulfilled God's covenant, and that he's died for you. He's done everything so that God can dwell with you. Why? Because he loves you. And he's committed to you in the person of Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ has done for you. What does this mean? It means this. God does not love you because you're successful. God does not love you because you get straight A's or straight B's. God doesn't love you because you're living wisely, although that's good. God doesn't love you because you've nailed the spiritual disciplines, although that's good. God doesn't love you because you don't sin like other people. God loves you because he loves you, period. He's committed to you and he moves towards you. Here's another way to say it. You are not loved by God because you're lovely. You're lovely because you're loved by God. That is a completely different paradigm. And if you live by the one, you'll live a life of slavery and fear and anxiety. You are not, you are not loved by God because you're lovely. That is a recipe for fear and slavery. You are lovely because you're loved by God. In fact, the, the, the man who wrote this gospel that we're embarking upon, John, the apostle, the disciple, he was one of the inner three with Jesus. He had up close and, and, and personal access to Jesus as one of the inner three. And he describes himself in this gospel as the one whom Jesus loved. That was his identity. He understood that he was lovely because he was loved by God. Back in 2008, there was an Australian man. His name was Ian Usher. He was so disappointed with his life that he decided to sell his life on an eBay auction. How do you do that? Well, let me tell you what he did. It's fascinating. He decided he wanted to break from his past. He had an ex-wife and he had memories from the past. He wanted a brand new life. So he decided to sell his life on an eBay auction, and he anticipated making about $390,000 off of it for a sale that included a furnished three-bedroom house, a car, a motorcycle, and a jet ski. He even threw in a one-time introduction to all his friends and a two-week trial run at becoming a permanent employee at the rug store where he worked. And his friends and employer all agreed to the terms of this auction. Listen to what he said about it. 
On the day it's all sold, he says, I intend to walk out my front door with my wallet in one pocket and my passport in the other and nothing else at all. He says his plans for his new life included a short visit to his mother before heading to the airport to figure out a new place to call home. And he said this, I'll see where life takes me from there. It's time to shed the old and bring on the new. Now, depending on where your circumstances are right now, that might seem actually fairly attractive to you. Here's the problem. A change in circumstances will never bring new life, ultimately. We are people who are addicted to circumstantial change. It will not bring new life as Jesus intends for it. The only way that you will thrive as Jesus intended for you to thrive as the one who made you is if you understand verse 12. But to all who did receive him, receive Jesus as Lord and Savior and turn your back on being your own Lord and Savior. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, reborn, new creations. And you're recreated and you're remade once upon receiving Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. And you're remade and you're created every morning, every day in a relationship with Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, no, we confess this morning our propensity to just think that some circumstantial change is going to bring life. Yet thank you for your word that tells, you, tells us that, that there, there is no ultimate new life found in circumstantial change. That new life is found in a person, in the person of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for not giving up on us. That when we flexed our muscles of independence from you, starting in Genesis 1 all the way till today, that our hearts just running from you and wanting independence, thank you that you did not leave us to our sin. That you have pursued us, that you continue to move towards us, that you continue to move towards us today in the midst of our sin and brokenness because you are committed to bringing life to us as you intended in the very beginning. And thank you for bringing that life through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those that are here this morning that maybe have never received Jesus Christ, never believed on him, that by your spirit, you would draw them to the place where they would bow the knee and turn from their independence and lean on you, Jesus. Confess you as Lord and Savior. Father, I pray for all here who are in Christ, but how we still have this old baggage of wanting independence that we would anew and refreshed every morning receive you, Jesus, as our Lord and Savior, that you are on the throne of our lives. And Father, for those that are here that have life in Christ, we praise you that that is all of grace and that salvation belongs to you and that you're a God 
who is abounding in steadfast love, has compassion on his children, and that you're a God who forgives, and you're a God that longs to dwell with us and longs to be with us. Father, we pray that by your spirit, our response would be, I believe. I repent and I believe. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.